You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsors, Facebook Design, Google Design, and MailChimp. You know, there's three things that set designing at Facebook apart from designing anywhere else. Scale, variety, and investment. Facebook Design's work has impact at scale, including your friends and family, or people from the other side of the world. Facebook Design also works on a huge and diverse range of problems, and they truly invest in design, caring deeply about how their team might do their best work. Sound interesting? Then learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's leading marketing platform for small businesses. Now, before I started Revision Path, I had my own design studio called Lunch, and I ran that for a little over nine years. And during that time, I've been fortunate to be a MailChimp expert and later on become a MailChimp partner. So I know inside and out that MailChimp not only puts out a great product for managing email, Facebook ads, Instagram ads, landing pages, postcards, all that stuff, but it's also a really great place to work full of dope people, some of which we've even had here on the show. So whether you're just starting out or you want to take your business to the next level, give MailChimp a try. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Now for this week's interview. We're talking to Anise Davis, an Android developer and software team lead in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Well, I'm Anise, and I'm a software team lead. I work at a startup that does solar energy in Africa, and my primary responsibility is focused on our mobile products. So it's like our in-house Android application, as well as our upcoming consumer products. Wow, are these like two separate companies or this is all under the same company? It's all under the same company. So the way that my company is structured, Zola Electric, is we have a fairly decent size, maybe around a thousand people who are part of our sales and service force who go to the homes in Africa and help people understand what solar energy is all about, collect that information for our systems. And then also we do service for people who have like solar panel issues, et cetera. And we use an Android application in order to handle that responsibility. So I'm responsible for that Android application. And then we're also starting to expand into like more consumer facing products. And I'll also be responsible for that's going to be Android and iOS. Oh, nice. Where in Africa are these, I guess, where, where, where you're bringing the solar energy? Where in Africa are you going? Right. Well, right now we're in Ghana, Ivory Coast, Rwanda, and Tanzania, and we're expanding into Nigeria. Nice. That is really dope. Um, it's really interesting to hear that like an Android app is kind of what's helping with the, I guess, the distribution and the, the maintenance and installation and everything of all this. That's pretty dope. It's really fun. And it's surprising because in the States, 
I think um, iOS is so dominant that we don't realize that in the rest of the world, actually, Android is king. Yeah. And pretty much everyone else has Android phones. So it just makes sense to support Android when we're doing work in Africa. I hope more people listening to this recognize that because I get clowned a lot for still having an Android phone because most of my friends, you know, here in the U.S. have, you know, iPhone X, Y, Z, whatever. Um, oh, I know. <laughs> I, I guess, you know, from being an, an Android developer and, of course, being in another country, why is Android so popular everywhere else except, I'm not saying it's not popular in, in the U.S., but why is Android so prevalent everywhere else? It's about the price point. I mean, mm. the Android phones, for the most part, except for like we say, like the Google Pixel and things, are so much cheaper to get. And then also in Africa, there are custom Android devices. So people have devices that you've never heard of, just all kinds of off-brand names. They're running Android. So that's why it's so prevalent because you can get a really cheap phone, like a techno phone, for example. I had never heard of it until Mm -hmm. I started working for this company, but it's extremely popular in various parts of Africa. Yeah, I know that this is in the past on the blog, as well as in some other places where I've written. I've, I've seen and talked about some of those phones that you're mentioning. It's like a different a different brand name, but like the hardware is pretty much similar to what we have with smartphones and it's running Android and that's what's that's what's out in the market there. Exactly. How did you first get started with Android development? Ah, so it's been a while actually. Uh, I've been doing Android now in about eight years and it started with me just getting my very first Android phone. And I was so interested in the fact that I could potentially make an app for something that I carry around in my pocket every day that I just started playing around, learning it on my own. And then I made an app for work and I showed my boss, I'm like, look, this is actually connecting to our APIs and it's running Android. And that's basically how I became an Android developer. It was just such, it was the right time. It was so early in the Android ecosystem. And it was just like right place, right time. Yeah, it's amazing seeing how much Android has really grown and changed over the years. I remember the first, what was the first Android phone I had? I think it was the G1. The It came out through T-Mobile. It was like the Google, it was a Google phone, but it was a G1. And the screen kind of like slid over like a sidekick and there was a keyboard underneath. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Funny story. I recorded the very first episode of Revision Path on that phone. Wow. Which, <laughs> which goes to show how long this podcast has been around. But yeah, I've always been a, an Android faithful person because it's very extensible. It's customizable. And I guess the price point also is, is sort of a good thing. I've always been able to get Android phones at a pretty reasonable price as opposed to, although now I guess with the way the market is in the US, that's not really so much the case. If you want to get yeah. a decent Android phone, it's about the same as an iPhone. Yeah, you're going to have to pay now, but I still, like, I have had Android phones, yeah, for, like, the past eight or nine years, and I just could never see myself not using an Android. Yeah, and people have, I know there's, like, common misconceptions, and not to turn this into, like, an Android fan cast or whatever, but (laughs) I, I, (laughs) I know there are misconceptions that people have about Android as it relates to, I guess... I feel like it's more about hardware than software, if that makes any sense. Whenever I see people talking about the differences between Android and iOS, it tends to boil down to the camera for some reason. 
I don't really understand that, but. Yeah, I think it's the whole, you know, I'm a Mac, I'm a PC thing. It's just mm. people identify with their products and the brand in a certain way. So it doesn't matter. It could be exactly the same thing, but they just identify with Apple and iOS and what that brand stands for. So they'll they'll stick with it. Yeah, that's so weird. I know I use I use a combination of PC and Mac, Android and iOS. Like I'm on a PC right now, but there's an iPad mini mounted to my desk. And then I have my Android phone next to me. I've got an iPad Pro, but you know, like to me, it's not, I don't know. I guess people kind of get locked into one thing and then that's just what, that's just what they do, I suppose. Exactly. Was tech like a big part of your childhood? I wouldn't say it was a big part of my childhood. But I do remember pretty early on, maybe like around fifth grade or so, that's when I decided, okay, I'm going to be a programmer. And ever since then, I just always stayed in science, math, technology. I went to like a special science and technology high school. So I just sort of always stayed in that focus from pretty early on. And you majored in it in college as well? Yeah, I did computer engineering, uh, which is interesting because it's a mix of computer science and electrical engineering. Mm -hmm. And about halfway through, I realized that I pretty much hated electrical engineering. But (laughs) (laughs) I'm one of those people that's like, well, I said I'm going to do computer engineering, so I'm just going to see it through. Mm -hmm. And I, I ended up getting a degree in computer engineering, but I started putting more and more computer science classes in. So at at the end of it, I knew, okay, yes, I'm going to be a programmer, this electrical engineering piece. It was nice to know, but, you know, not going to use it in life. Yeah. I think there's also something to be said, too, about how much curriculum has kind of changed over the years. I know when I got in college, I started out with computer science and computer engineering because I wanted to learn how to make websites. This was, what what year was this? This was 99 when this happened. And I remember my advisor telling me point blank that the the web is a fad, internet is just a fad, and that if this is something that you really want to study, then you should change your major, which I ended up doing because the only thing that we were learning in, not the only thing, but what we were learning in the computer science, computer engineering program was C++ and I was understanding it, but it wasn't like clicking, I guess, for me. And I wanted to know, like, when are we going to start learning HTML? And the professor would just laugh, like, oh, that's, you know, (laughs) we don't, we don't do that here. And now I feel like with curriculum the way it is now, you can go to a lot of different schools and get, I feel like, a pretty good, solid education in, I mean, web stuff, but also engineering and things like that. So I know curriculum sometimes can be slow to change with colleges because they're just these big archaic institutions, but. Right. You've also got places like General Assembly. You've got courses like Linda. You have you have two Linda courses, you know. You yeah. have courses like that where people can kind of supplement that knowledge with more recent things that are happening out in the field. I mean, I definitely, there's always this debate in the tech community about like boot camp graduates versus people who follow the more traditional approach, getting their degree in computer science, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, it's about the experience. It's about your experience. So as someone who hires people, I'm always looking for the experience. I'm looking for someone who's eager to learn new things as a self-starter, can be independent and all that. So 
I don't know. I feel like colleges will have to adjust to the fact that employers are no longer saying this is a hard requirement for someone to work for me and do technical things. Yeah, I think earlier this year, both Google and uh, Apple were saying that they were kind of getting rid of the college requirement for people that applied there. So it's becoming, I guess, less and less of a a mandatory requirement, but it's more about, like you said, your experience and the other skills that you bring to the table. Yeah. So with what you're doing right now, you're in management. This is actually a question from our audience. Uh, and uh, he wanted to know, this person's name is Cornelius. He wanted to know, so now that you're in management, do you think that you'd ever go back to being primarily a solo contributor? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't I don't think that I would now because when you're just taking like the individual contributor track, the amount of influence that you can have on the final product is somewhat limited. And also in many companies, the impact that you can have on other developers is somewhat limited. So now that I've started moving towards more uh, management track, I can influence people in a different way. So I'm having one-on-ones with people and I'm not just talking about coding standards. I'm talking about professionalism, how you can communicate, working in a distributed team. How does that differ when you're co-located? All these things I feel actually help people ultimately to move in whatever direction they want with their career. And you're more likely to do those things when you're going towards a more management track versus individual contributor. I feel you. That makes a lot of sense too, because like you say, when you're just sort of one person on the team, it's hard to make that big of an impact throughout the company. And I guess it may depend on how the company is structured, but yeah, right. once you get to that management level, you're influencing a team. You're really kind of overseeing the work as opposed to getting in there with you and like getting your hands dirty too much, I guess. Yeah. I mean, since I work at a startup, obviously I'm still coding a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a small team. We're moving fast. Things are always changing. So it's not like, oh no, I'm just going to stop coding now. I can't see myself not coding. Yeah. I, yeah. I just can't see myself not coding. Even if I was like CTO of a company, I would probably have some side projects that I was hacking on all the time because yeah. I really enjoy it. I just enjoy doing that. And it, it helps to kind of keep your, your skills sharp too. Yeah, definitely. I, I have a friend. He's a he's a senior. Uh, yeah, he's actually has been on the show, Lasani Oakley. But he's senior vice president at Deutsch, and he has a team, you know, that he oversees. But he will stay late at the office and like pull in long hours coding, getting stuff in. And I think for him, it's important to show his team that like I'm not just the talking head at the top. Like I'm here with you. Like I'm working and doing the same kind of work that you're doing. So don't. I don't know. It's something that I'm, I I also work at sort of a startup, which is kind of a startup, although we've been around for 18 years, so not really a startup, Uh, (laughs) but we've changed and grown so much just within the past few years. And I know what you mean about it's, you kind of can't really divorce yourself that much from doing the work of of getting in there and and really kind of tackling thing hands on. I get that. I'm the same way. I feel like I have to still have my hand on something working on it in order for me to feel like I'm making an impact. Yeah, it's definitely different also because um, when you start doing more management things, I think it's really easy to feel, well, I haven't done anything productive. 
Because when you're mm. coding, you know, I checked in these lines of code. I closed this Jira ticket. I reviewed this pull request. There's these very discrete, somewhat quantitative items that you can point to and say, yes, I did this, this and that, and I'm productive. But when you're doing management, you have to try to think of it from, well, how am I helping other people to be productive? Mm -hmm. How did I unblock this person? Okay, I helped this other person understand the importance of having visibility to the work that they're doing. And that has this like long term effect. It definitely takes a different way of thinking to feel a similar level of contentment. Absolutely. I totally get where you're coming from there. Let's go back to, to Off Grid, which is is the startup that you work for. What's a typical day like for you there? I mean, we've kind of mentioned already you're doing one-on-ones and stuff, but on an average day, what kind of work are you doing? So on an average day, what I'll do is I go in the office three days a week. So let's say, let's pick one of the office days. Okay. So I head in the office and the first thing I've already started doing is responding to emails. Since the company is distributed, we have people who are in the States, people in Russia who've already been working for two hours. And then we have uh, the team in Amsterdam and people in Africa. So one thing I try to do is make sure that I've unblocked anyone who's in Russia because they've already started working. And if they've sent me messages, I just try to deal with it and handle it. So that's it, like kind of unblocking people, step one. Then the next thing I do is look at my schedule and see where I have chunks of meetings. So I try to chunk my meetings because I like to work uninterrupted. And I'll say, okay, great, I have a meeting in two hours. So it gives me two hours of uninterrupted work. Mm-hmm. And then I'll take the next like high priority issue that needs to be addressed. I gotta put my headphones on and I listen to sort of like brainwave music and I just focus for that whole two hours on what needs to be done. And I sort of pop back out do meetings, unblock more people, and then do it again. So I'll typically have maybe one to two, like really strong focus hours to work on architecture or coding most days. I need to do that with my meetings because my meetings often are like spread out. I'll either have like a chunk in the morning and then there's like a huge gap of time. And then I've got maybe one or two at the end of the day. That makes a lot of sense to kind of try to If I could, I'd get them all on maybe one or two days, but I don't have that luxury yet. Yeah. I mean, that is, (laughs) I'm telling you, that is a game changer. So as much as possible, I try to have any meetings on Wednesdays. So Mm. it's like no meeting Wednesdays. This gives you a whole day to do focus work, catch up on things, just block and tackle Wednesdays. And then if someone tries to like drop a meeting on my schedule that's maybe, you know, in between some other meetings, then I ask them, please, can you chunk it with this other meeting that I have? Or can we reschedule for another day where I have this block of meeting time? Because otherwise, I feel very uh, distracted. Like, okay, 30 minutes, I can try to get into the headspace of something that I need to work on. And then, whoops, meeting. Yeah. So I really, yeah, it's so, it's so ineffective and unproductive uh, for developers to constantly have their day broken up by meeting. I hear that. I hope folks that are listening take that advice to mind. Is, is this the first time that you've worked on a distributed team? No, actually, before coming to OffGrid, I was working for the Washington Post for a long time. I was there for about seven years. And part of our back-end team was based in Russia as well. 
So I did have some interaction with them. And I think I had maybe one person in Boston and I was in the Washington, D.C. area. But nothing to the extent where it is now, where it's like people all over the place, all kinds of time zones. Mm-hmm. So definitely was a big adjustment. Speaking of big adjustments, you're in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. We've had a few folks on the show recently who are kind of, I guess, expats to new countries in Europe. So we've had at the top of the year, we had uh, Abimbola Idobu, who's in Berlin. He's originally from Lagos. We've had Courtney Pinter, who is in Zurich, and she's originally from Chicago. How long have you been in the Amsterdam area? I moved first thing of the year, so January. And then, yeah, it's it's been almost a whole year. I can't believe it. But yeah, almost a whole year wow. I've been here. What has been the biggest change for you so far? I think the biggest change is how the Dutch communicate. Um <laughs> It's just very different from how we communicate in the States, at least in my area. I tend to think of myself as a direct person. So when I was moving to Amsterdam, people were like, oh, yes, the Dutch are so direct. It's almost rude. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, look, I'm direct. I can handle it. I'm ready. (laughs) Drop me in. And it's just on another level of directness that you're not necessarily prepared for because we're we're as Americans we do tend to be like good morning hi excuse me pardon me you know we tend to do all those things but they don't necessarily feel the need to engage in those niceties so you won't have that and someone might just bump into you and keep walking oh wow yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) so if if you're from the DMV it's like whoa oh oh yeah okay yeah absolutely you can't yeah yeah. (laughs) but then it's like wait okay if you bump into someone they don't do anything you just keep walking so it's just a different mindset where you're like okay (laughs) they just bumped into me didn't say excuse me and we're all okay with this. All right, let's just, you know, wrap your head around it. Yeah. Or, you know, it's just different things like that where you're not necessarily used to it. Or in meetings, like let's say we're at work and we're in meetings, they tend to be like very frank, very honest about things. They don't sugarcoat anything. They say, no, that's not a good idea. That won't work. Whereas maybe in America, we'd be saying, hmm, that's an interesting idea can we try to break down how we think that might work? I mean, ultimately, we don't think it will work either, but we yeah. would just out and say it, you know? Interesting. I don't going to say it wouldn't be tolerated, but certainly people would think you're being rude or being very, very sharp with people, but instead you're just like, I just, I'm just, i just trying to get to the point of yep. what it is we need or what we don't need without all the kind of like flowery other stuff around it. Yeah, there's this great book on it called The Culture Map. And it just breaks down all these different dimensions of how people communicate in business based on their country of origin. Hmm. And it was so fascinating to read it and to compare myself, American, to Dutch person and how we communicate in business and to see those gaps in alignment. It helped me to bring things into perspective because you can't go into someone's country, their world and expect them to change. You have to go in and say, okay, what can I change, especially with your viewpoint, so that I can 
make the most of this experience. And you said it's called the culture map is what it's called? Yeah. Yes, it's called the culture map. Yeah, I'm going to have to check that out because like at Glitch, we are a distributed team. So the company is based in New York. I'm in Atlanta. We have people throughout the U.S. I think we have one or two people in Canada. We've got someone in the U.K., in Italy. We just brought on someone in Ireland, someone in Denmark. So I know that we're expanding out, certainly. I think we've always kind of been distributed in that way. But certainly as we bring on new people and they're from different countries, it's like getting those different communication styles together and how does that work with meetings and and things like that. And even as I, and I'm thinking about as I build out my team, I think my team is mostly going to be in New York, but if we happen to branch out past there, that's something that I would need to be considerate of. I mean, I even think about it when I talk to people here on the show, you know, I talk to people from all over and I, I definitely can tell a difference from <laughs> when I talk to someone who is in another country or from another country than from someone here in the States. It's just a different, I don't know, a different level of directness. That's yeah. not necessarily rude. It's just more to the point of what it is they're trying to say. Yeah. And then and then you'll have the flip side. In some countries, they just do not get to the point. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you're still waiting like, Okay. <laughs> and the point is, yeah. You know? So it's a, yeah, I definitely recommend that book. It helps you to have a proper perspective and to realize that people are just different. It's not better, it's not worse, it's just different. Yeah. So we're talking about speaking. You do a lot of public speaking. I know we have some folks in our audience who definitely want to speak at conferences. They want to speak at events. Talk about how you got started as a public speaker. Okay. Um, My first talk was about three years ago at a conference. And initially, I wasn't going to apply. And then one of my Twitter friends reached out to me and said like, hey, a bunch of us are going to apply to speak at this conference. I've I've read your blog. I know you have something that you can talk about. You should apply to speak. And I thought about it and thought about it. And I'm like, okay, let's give it a shot. So I applied to speak. And then the first round of acceptance had went out to everyone. So people are like, oh, I'm speaking. Yay, yay, yay. And I didn't get accepted. Oh. And I was so down. And then I thought about it. No, I belong at that conference. I have something important to share and I want to speak there. So I started creating um, a draft of my slides with what I wanted to share. And I emailed one of the conference organizers and just said, hey, I noticed I didn't make it in the first round, but I just want to let you know I'm so excited to speak at your conference. This is what I have to offer. And here's a draft of my slides. And then like the next day I got accepted. So that, wow. that is my first conference talk story. Nice. That's good. So you you won him over with your with your talk. Yes. Yeah, so be persistent. <laughs> That's my first uh, piece of advice: is be persistent. Sometimes you just need um, to say, like, "Hey, look, this is what I can offer your conference," and that may sway the vote in your favor. So that's what happened at my first conference talk, and honestly, it went really well. I was so excited. A couple of people from the Android community were in the audience, and they tweeted out support for it. And I think it was just all uphill, downhill (laughs) from there. Mm. So then once you sort of build up your reputation, 
conferences reach out to you directly and just say, hey, we're having this event coming up. We would love if you would be able to speak. Are you interested? That's how you can get going. And you're basically in this like circuit of speakers and you know, you can pick, pick your poison. Nice. And I mean, you're speaking on a very, you know, specialized subject about Android development. So I would imagine that makes you even more in demand. Yeah, there are a lot of Android conferences and more and more popping up all over the world. So it's really up to you to say, okay, what do you want to be known for? Mm-hmm. Um, so that you're not known for everything, I guess, you know, like pick something that's like special for you and then be known for that thing. Um, I think that's also another key to doing well in the conference circuit. How has speaking helped your career? Oh, wow. I think so. Some concrete things. That first talk that I gave three years ago, someone from O'Reilly Media saw the talk and said, oh, we'd love for you to do a course for O'Reilly based on this talk's content. Mm. And I thought to myself, hmm, okay, I never really thought about doing online courses. All right, let's give it a shot. And that's when I did my first course for them. And then after that, it was like more people saying like, hey, I'm also doing some online content, would you be interested in creating something for us? Sure. And it all started from speaking at a conference. Even the fact that I work here at uh, Off-Grid Electric is from someone that I met in the conference circuit. They just reached out to me and said, hey, look, we're hiring for this position. We'd love for you to come join our team. Let me know if you're interested. So all of these different things started out from just taking a chance, being persistent and speaking at a conference. Wow. All of that just from, from speaking at conferences. It, it, yeah. I mean, that's good to hear because I feel like, I mean, I don't know if it's different in the tech sphere, but I know in the design sphere, I feel like there's the same six or seven dozen people that end up getting recycled between conferences and events and meetups and keynotes and stuff. And it's rare that you get to hear from newer voices, for more diverse voices, et cetera. I feel like in the tech community, it's a bit more open to that respect. And maybe that's because the conversations around diversity have been more prevalent than they have been in design, or at least more public, I would say, than they've been in design. Do you find now that even with the speaking that you're doing that you're starting to see like a newer crop of folks coming up and giving talks? Definitely. From when I first started, it's so much more diverse. And I know one thing that conferences are doing now, they're doing blind voting, where the first round, all we see is like the talk title and abstract. And then there's a committee of people who give it a rating. And then afterwards, we just take the top few and then we go through and then finally we say, okay, now who are these people? Mm-hmm. And I think that makes a difference because then you're judging talks based on the merit. Is this title enticing enough? Is the abstract needy enough that people would say, oh, yes, I want to learn more about this. That type of thing needs to happen more so that you can have more diverse speakers out there showing the the world what they have to offer. And then the other thing that I've seen is, um, I think, is it this year? Yeah, this year I offered to review abstracts for people for JoyCon Berlin, which is a huge Android conference. And only one woman asked me to review her abstract. Mm. (laughs) 
everyone else was men. And then some of the people, the title was kind of boring or sort of off, but the abstract was good. So we just say, okay, you know what? Let me give you a few ideas. What do you think about these three different titles? Oh, I like this one. And then all of a sudden their talk gets accepted. Hmm. So I think, I think part of it is just people who are speakers being open to say, okay, look, people, I'm willing to help you. Show me your title, show me your abstract, and I'll give you some feedback. And yeah, now like you're more likely to be accepted. But, but as far as women goes, I, I just think sometimes it has to be a personal invitation. Like, mm. hi, person. I want you to speak mm. at this conference. No, it's interesting you mentioned that. I remember I've, I've seen studies and read articles about how that is the case. I, I, it more so, I think, broke down around hiring. Like I was seeing things saying that if you want to have more women apply for certain positions, you'll need to invite them personally because chances are if there's even one woman, I guess in like the the group of men, maybe just probability speaking here, but that the woman won't get chosen for the job or won't get a call back or something to that effect. And I think it's something, you know, granted that is just rampant, ugly, pervasive sexism that's in the industry, but it also shows that organizers and such, you know, need to do just more outreach in general. So like what you're saying with the blind voting, I think that's really great because then you're able to just look at the ideas for their merit. But then right. if the person never submits their idea, then it's like there's there's kind of only so much you can do. It's a it's a odd sort of a a con it's a conundrum, I guess, that happens. Like getting more people involved and wanting to to talk and share their experience, but then also knowing that it's not I don't know. Is this making any sense? Like, like of no, course you want to have more women. Yeah, like you want to have more women submit yeah. their ideas, but then of course it goes yeah. to this blind voting, and it's like, oh well, we don't really know who we're picking, but we want to make sure that we have diversity. I I can see how it could be confusing. Yeah, no, I've organized a few different events, and I struggle with the same things as other conference organizers, where I may reach out to a handful of women, even in my personal network. And it's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm busy, I'm this and that. And people are entitled to that. Mm -hmm. But it's just a lot harder to get as much diversity as you want, even just in the pool of people who submit talks. So, um, yeah, it's definitely a really tricky problem. But I do think blind voting helps. And I think seasoned speakers saying, hey, I'm offering my time and I'm willing to review things will also help. Yeah, I think that's a really good thing that you've got those seasoned speakers that are kind of reaching back to help out the next generation that's coming up. Right. What do you want to accomplish most in 2019? Do you have a a dream project or anything that you'd love to do or, or something along those lines? Oh, that's a great question. I think for me, 2019 will be about finding the proper balance. (laughs) That's something that I try to aim for every year, pretty much. Mm -hmm. But I feel like now that I'm here in the Netherlands, I have a chance to be healthier, um, like physically as well, um, mentally, just a healthier, more balanced person. And I tend to like be go, 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 go. And And for 2019, I honestly just want to slow down and and give myself time to 
just be like a healthier, more centered person. Is Amsterdam a good city for that? It's ideal for it. First of all, I absolutely love walking. I just love to walk with Mm -hmm. no purpose. I just walk and clear my head and all those good things. And it's such a beautiful city and it has sidewalks everywhere. So I'll just walk for like an hour (laughs) and there's sidewalks and I'm just walking, walking. So if you're familiar with Maryland at all, there's very few sidewalks and Mm -hmm. you cannot just walk aimlessly all around the place. Oh, I'm I'm in Atlanta. It's a car city. So I know it's in that same respect. Yeah. (laughs) It's like it doesn't want you to walk much drive. Um, But uh, the Netherlands is perfect for it. So I think for me, that's just something that I want to try to be like more, more mindful of my own like health and things like that. Do you have a, a dream project or anything that you'd love to do this year? What I really want to accomplish next year is to release a cross-platform application. I've been spending my time learning a lot about Flutter, which Google announced. Um, I think it was like the 2017 Google I.O. Mm-hmm. And now it's stable. And it's made a 1.0 version a couple of weeks ago. And so I really would like to push Flutter to its limits and get something real out the door next year. So when you say it's, it's cross-platform, so basically you make the app and it works on iOS and Android. It doesn't have to be two separate versions. Exactly. So you're oh. writing code in the Dart programming language is what it is. Okay. And then you're using like uh, the Flutter framework and Flutter widgets to create your UI in uh, its programmatic UI. And then that would be compiled down into like native code that can um, then be created into the separate binaries, one for Android and one for iOS. Nice. I would love to see more stuff like that. It always bugs me when I see apps come out for iOS and then it's like Android coming soon, which really (laughs) means Android coming when we get more funding because they just prioritize the iOS version first. Exactly. And then it's funny because then you'll see the reverse in Africa. It's like Mm. Android is available. iOS, maybe, maybe not. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. Um, Isn't it also yeah. like more expensive, I guess, in terms of like joining the the iOS app store and everything? Like it's much it's much more expensive to do that than join the Google Play Store, or is it about the same cost? I don't remember. No, Apple is more expensive. Okay. Um last time I checked, I think theirs was maybe a hundred bucks to join a year or something like that. And then mm-hmm. I think Google is like twenty five dollars forever. I mean, yeah, it's a huge oh, wow. difference in, in price point. But also in the past, I've when I've done some iOS work, it was such a hassle to work with all the provisioning profiles and things that Apple had going on. And I'm just hoping I've read a few articles that make it seem as if they've streamlined the process some. So I'm hoping that's actually true. Okay. When you look back at your career, I mean, you worked at the Washington Post, like you said, uh, even as I did my research, and this is something you and I have in common, we both worked at NASA. Oh, really? Yeah, you worked at Goddard. I I did two internships, one at Marshall in Alabama, Marshall Space Flight Center, and one at Ames Research Center out in California. Nice. When you look back, though, at your career, what do you wish you would have known when you first started? I think for me, the major thing I wish I would have known is that work is not school. Work, Mm. you cannot just work really hard 
finish all your projects on time, meet all the deadlines, and go to your boss and say, ta-da, and expect you're just going to get an A. Because work is so much more than what you do. It's about what people think you do. (laughs) It's about what you're bringing to the company. It's about your visibility. It's about how you advocate for yourself. It's office politics, whether you like it or not. Work is just not school. Mm -hmm. And it took me so long to understand that and to just accept it, whether I liked it or not. Yeah. That's the fact. That's a word. That's a, you just, you just spoke a word on my spirit with that. (laughs) Oh my God. My, my first few jobs after I graduated college, I definitely was in that same vein of like, well, I'm doing all the things. Why is it, you know, why am I not progressing or whatever? And part of it was just, I was stuck in like these dead end jobs that, I mean, I, I graduated with a degree in math and like the only thing you could really be at that time was a math teacher or go to grad school and, or become an actuary. And none of that really was, was uh, attractive to me. So I like sold tickets at the symphony and I was a telemarketer and I was treating work like school. Like, Oh, if I just show up and just do the work, then it's, it's fine. But yeah, like you said, it's so much more than that work is a, it is a multidimensional experience that I think none of us really understand until we're in it. Yeah. So true. Yeah. Yeah. Who keeps you motivated and inspired? throughout everything that you're doing? Is there anyone in particular or any peers or mentors or family members, anyone like that? Okay. So of course I'll have to say my husband, (laughs) really, he keeps me, he keeps me grounded. So one thing is I tend to overanalyze everything and I'll say, you know, Oh, I put this course out there. It was my, it's my best work so far. Why doesn't everyone love it? You you know, (laughs) and and he's kind of like, okay, why did you create the course? Yeah. Did you enjoy the process of creating the course? Did it achieve the goals that you wanted? And I'm like, yes. Okay, yes, I did. Yes, yes. Then it doesn't matter. <laughs> and it just sort of helps bring me back to reality. So I need that person in my life who listens to every talk, even though he's not in the tech space at all. He okay. doesn't even know about what I'm talking about. He <laughs> listens to every talk. And that I just find that like so supportive and he'll say, oh, wait, right there. I didn't understand what you were saying. I think you need to add another slide or something and explain that a bit more. Mm -hmm. And I just really um, need that. And then the other thing is I have people in the Android community who I look to as like unofficial mentors. One of them, he told me I was really down about something. uh, Someone had commented on like a blog post or something. And he said, look, everything you do in life. You have to think about the rule of thirds. So a third of the people will support you. A third of the people don't care. And a third of the people will be negative. As soon as you get some sort of feedback into your uh, funnel, you quickly just put it in the bucket where it belongs and you keep it moving. He's like, when you dwell on negative feedback, it stops you from being productive. So if I already know, okay, this thing came in, which bucket does it go in? I put it there and then I can move on. And it honestly has helped me so much to just stay focused on executing and not get caught up in negative people. Mm, that's a good philosophy to, to have. I like that rule of thirds. That's really good. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? What kind of work do you want to be doing at that point? 
I see myself in the next five years as maybe like a, a director of technology somewhere or a chief technology officer somewhere. I really want to have a larger impact in companies and I want to be more strategic in what it is that I'm bringing to the table versus just um, like coding or doing things that are uh, more on an individual contributor level. Do you have any advice that you've got? I mean, aside from the rule of thirds, though, I guess that might count. But is there any advice that you would give to somebody that wants to follow in your footsteps? They see the work that you're doing. You're overseas. You're working with, you know, nonprofits and stuff in Africa. Like, what advice would you give to somebody that wants to do what you're doing now? Save your money. I think, (laughs) (laughs) I know that may sound a little silly, but no, no, not in this economy. No. uh, Okay. Yes. So I think that is the best advice so that you don't have to feel like you owe your job something Mm. because I feel that some people, they get stuck financially and then they feel obligated. Like, well, no one else is going to hire me and pay me this same amount of money, or it's going to be too hard for me to try to move and handle my financial obligations. But if you can find a way to save up some money, you're more likely to take a risk. You're more likely to say, you know what? Yes, I do work at a very stable company, but there's this super exciting startup that I would love to be able to participate in, and I'm all in on their mission. Let me take a chance. And I, and I just feel like a lot of things over the past five years or so have been me just taking a chance. And I think that's really important because you don't know where the next opportunity will come from. Save your money. That is some real pertinent. I like that. I, I love that, actually. Save your money. I like, I think you might be the first person that has said that. Some, not, not, not to say that other people don't give great advice, but like nobody, no one ever says like, save your money because you never know. I, I, yeah, but yeah, I, I get that sense of like, it is harder to take that risk when that's looming over you because you know that, like, like how that saying goes where like you shouldn't leave a job unless you got another one kind of lined up. It stems from that, like not having that financial cushion or base or what have you to allow you to take those kind of leaps and risks without, you know, any sort of a, a downfall. Yeah. I mean, just think about it. You'll read these stories of people who are founders of companies and all this stuff. And then they'll tell you, I just quit my job. And then my dad paid my mortgage for the next year. And I went all in focusing on the mission. And now I'm a billionaire or, or some, <laughs> some like very extreme thing they did. In the one hand, they did. They took a chance. And, and it worked out for them. But on the other hand, financially, they were okay. They were able to make it. Yeah. And I think if you can't do that, then you're not willing to take a chance. You're not willing to say, you know what? I'm going nowhere at this job. Let me try this other job. Maybe I'll make a little less money initially, but I'll learn this new thing that will help me to take my career to the next level. And it's, it's all connected to whether or not you feel financially safe enough to do it. Save your money, y'all. Save your money in 2019. <laughs> Let that be your, your New Year's resolution. Right. So just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? I'm pretty active on Twitter. So you can find me on Twitter at Brown Girl Dev, And then also um, LinkedIn. So feel free to reach out to me there as well. 
All right. Sounds good. Well, Anise Davis, I want to thank you just so much for coming on the show. Thank you really for just sharing your story. Like you said, and this is, you know, before we recorded, you talked about how important it is to be visible and to advocate for yourself. And I think certainly with the advice that you've given in this interview, as well as just talking about your own personal experience, I hope that the listeners get that and they understand how important that is in order for them to really advance in their career and just to advance in life and period. So uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. Thoughts of love are And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Anise Davis and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Anise and her work through the links in the show notes at glitch.com forward slash revision path. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Google Design, and MailChimp. Designing at Facebook means more than just making pixel-perfect prototypes. It's designing experiences like disaster relief tools or get-out-the-vote efforts. It's working on problems that transform a number of different industries. And it also means caring about the design community and giving back to it as well. If you like influencing strategy and working alongside technical leads and engineers on a product from start to finish, then Facebook Design might be for you. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. They support millions of customers from small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, and they support the creative community as well, including us. You know, MailChimp really gives you the marketing tools to be yourself on a bigger stage. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. Revision Path is brought to you by Glitch, the friendly community where you'll find the app of your dreams. Make sure you check us out at Glitch.com. We're also powered by Simplecast, the easiest way for podcasters to publish and distribute audio on the internet. Check out the show notes for a link to sign up for a 14-day free trial. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, then let more people know about it by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It takes about a minute or so to do, and it really helps spread the word about Revision Path everywhere. You can also find us on Spotify, on Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your favorite shows. And make sure you're following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for Revision Path. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.